welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sukkar near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink, for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink for me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me. The hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking to a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar and went away into town and said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning to everyone. Six weeks ago or more, Eric said, would you be able to preach on the 14th? And I said, absolutely. And he said, you can preach on any passage you want. And I was thrilled at that because I wanted to go to John chapter 4. I've been wanting to do this for a long time. I preached on this passage two, three, maybe four, I don't think it's been four years, but I've preached through this passage before, but I love it, and I love it for several reasons. There are many reasons, 
One reason is that it equips us to do what Eric was preaching about last week, which is take the, the message of the gospel and go to our world with it. It equips us towards that end. And the other thing that it does so beautifully, I think, is display the Lord Jesus Christ and his beauty to us in, in a very lovely way. And if you had to boil down what being a Christian is, guys, it is about that. It is about knowing and loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we see him beautifully displayed, it, it nurtures our love for him, doesn't it? And that's where we want to be. We want to love the Lord Jesus. This is a church that loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Last week when Rebecca came home from taking care of the babies in nursery here at church, she was in the nursery with Vanessa Calhoun. You guys know Darnell and Vanessa, and they have two beautiful little boys, Russell and Troy. But uh, she told her that she was preparing Russell to go to church the next day. And she says, when we go to church, you get to go to class, Russell. And she asked him, what do they teach you about in your class? And these are his words, Russell's words, three years old. He said this, they teach us about Jesus Christ. The two names of our Lord, or his title. They teach us about Jesus Christ. And then he says, and I love him. Oigewald. It's like, I want to be a disciple of Russell now. <laughs> He's getting it, guys. That's what it's all about, loving the Lord Jesus Christ. And the passage we're going to look at today equips us to take this message of our Lord and Savior to our world. And there are basically two things involved in our great missionary task, if you will. And they are sending and going. And both of them are equally important and I know that many of you are senders in this room, and I depend on people like you. For the last 34 years, roughly, our ministry and our family has been supported by the renewable gifts of God's people. And I thank God for people like, like you who are senders. And if I can put in a plug at this point, let's send Lorianne fully funded, and maybe with a little extra to her field. She depends on people like you, senders. One of the most famous things we know about William Carey, that great missionary who with no formal education translated the scriptures into some 40 different languages and dialects on the Indian subcontinent. A man who founded the Indian Agricultural Society, a man who was just accomplished so much, he wrote the first English Bengali dictionary, no small task. He taught himself Greek and Hebrew to such an extent that he felt more comfortable reading the Psalms devotionally in Hebrew because they fed his soul more. And this was a man who faced many obstacles. He had a sick wife. He went to the field late. He couldn't get his support together. But we do know this. He told his supporters, he said, if you'll hold a rope, I'll go down to the pit. And those of us who are sending are holding the rope. And I would encourage you with me to send Lorianne back fully funded. But we have to remember also that these responsibilities of sending and going overlap. And those of us who, who go must also be involved in sending. And those of you who send must be involved in going and proclaiming the gospel yourself, beginning with your own sphere of influence, whatever that may be. And that's our great task and privilege, to go out and tell the world about the saving love of Jesus. Such an important thing. 
So it's important to remember that those of you who send must also be involved in going. And we're approaching, like I said, a passage of Scripture that perhaps as well as any other equips us towards that great end. And it's a passage of Scripture that is universally known as the story of the woman at the well. But I think we should rather call it the story of the man at the well because the woman that came to the well on that day behaved in an absolutely predictable way. Everything she did was utterly predictable. But the man that she met there, everything he did was simply astonishing. It was mind-bending given the personal and historical context that he found himself in. There's nothing very mysterious about what she did, but what he did was monumental. And there's two things in this text, what she did and what he did. And we're going to focus mainly on what he did because that's the thrust of the passage David read it. It's a very extended passage. I wanted you to have that for context. In fact, I encourage you sometime this week to sit down with a pad and pen and just go over the text and make observations. What did she do? What did Jesus do? What's going on here? Study it yourself. In fact, before we even take it a step further, let's go ahead and pray and hand our morning over to the Lord once more. Heavenly Father, we pray, Lord God, that by your Spirit you would open our minds to see Jesus, we would see Jesus, Lord, and equip us to take your gospel, the gospel of your Son, the gospel of salvation in Jesus, to our world. Lord, have your way with us, and we pray that you would change us and transform us. And we pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You know, there are lots of ways to divide the gospels, topically, etc. But one of the ways to divide the Gospels is according to the different people that Jesus met with. Because Jesus met with representative people. Now, I don't mean to say by that that they weren't real or historical. They were. There are some who are more liberal in their persuasion who believe that the evangelists were concocting different types of people for Jesus to meet with because Jesus met with representative people. But guess what? You're a representative people. I'm a representative people, right? We all are persons who represent a certain segment and demographic of society. And Jesus did meet with representative people. For example, in John chapter 3, he met with somebody very important. Do you remember who that was? Nicodemus, right? And Nicodemus was a representative person. He was up and in. I mean, he was the cream of the crop in his culture. He was rich he was powerful. He was uh, a Pharisee. He was a scholar. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the ruling court of Israel. In fact, Jesus calls him the teacher of Israel. Pretty heady title. And with all these advantages that Nicodemus had of education and birth, all Jesus said to him is, Nicodemus, you need another birth. You need to be born again. And that's the last thing he expected to hear. On his way to the cross in Luke chapter 19, we'll take a look at this in a little bit, the Lord met with another representative person, someone who was up and out. His name was Zacchaeus. He was up in the tree. And he was rich, and he was powerful, but he was also despised by his people. And in this passage, Jesus meets with another representative person in uh, John chapter 4. He, meet, he meets with a Samaritan, and not only a Samaritan, but a Samaritan woman. And not only a Samaritan woman, woman, but an immoral Samaritan woman. 
And she met Jesus on a hot and dry day when the well was a long way off and the water was deep and hard to get. And I think I can identify more with her than with the other two who are rich and powerful, which I am not. But what did she do? Real quickly, five things, and we're going to just gloss over them because we want to get to what Jesus did. But when she came to Jesus, the first thing she did was that she sunk into stereotypes. Jesus was a Jewish man, and he was addressing her alone. And she thought if a Jewish man was addressing her alone, that there was a good reason for it. And the reason she had was very certain to her. She had a reason because she had Jesus stereotyped. She had him pegged. And when we come to the world with a gospel of peace, they're going to stereotype us. They're going to say, oh, yeah, we know what you're all about. You're a Christian. You're, I've read about you in the last two election cycles. I know what you're all about. And these are stereotypes that we have to face and debunk with our love and the truth and the gospel, right? But the world would fall into stereotypes with us as well. The second thing she wanted to know, quite frankly, was how Jesus was going to meet her needs. She wanted tap water. She didn't want to go to that well. She wanted to meet her physical needs. And Jesus said, you've got a much greater need that is urgent, and that is your spiritual welfare. But she wanted to know about how he was going to meet her her needs. The third thing that she did was that she wanted to talk about controversial questions. You people say. She wanted to get the focus off her and her issues, her sin. And she wanted to talk about fights and controversies. And it's wrong to major on those things. The fourth thing that she did, and you can see I'm flipping through my notes quick here because we have very little time. But the fourth thing that she did was that she wanted to know who he was. Right around verse 25, she becomes interested in actually knowing who Jesus Christ is and what he's doing. And unbelievers, guys, can be interested in many things, many benefits that the church brings. They think maybe it's good for their family. You know, they can bring their kids to Sunday school. Or they think that perhaps they can meet people and have better fellowship. But no matter what an unbeliever is interested in, they cannot receive life. They cannot receive life until they become interested in dealing with who Jesus is. And around verse 25, she gets along the the right path here. And the, the fifth thing that she did was that she received him. You say, well, how do you know that? Because it's nowhere in the text. I know that from verse 28. She left her water pot. She came to the well in the heat of the day to draw water. And when she met Jesus, she forgot all about her water. You want to know how else I know she became a believer? She became a missionary immediately. Twelve men, highly trained, came into that city with Jesus. And not one of them, as far as we know, even mentioned the name of the Lord. She became a missionary before she even took a drink of water. Now, here's the point. What did he do? How did she get to the place, you know, because she was coming to the well for water. How did she become a missionary so quickly, an evangelist so quickly? And what kinds of things did Jesus do to bring about such a startling transformation? And what kinds of things must we do to be effective proclaimers in the hands of the Holy Spirit and bring about, so that he can bring about such amazing changes in the hearts of people? And the first thing that Jesus did in this text, and there, by the way, 
There are six things we're going to cover real fast. The first thing that Jesus did was that he came to her. And that's a very simple and necessary thing. He came to her. Verse 5. So he came to a city of Samaria called Sychar, near the parcel of ground that Jacob gave to his son Joseph. You know, I've been to many missions conferences in my life. I've been to, let me rephrase that, to many, 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 many missions conferences, the operative word being many. I went to a large church in Long Beach, raised there, and we had a missions conference every year. We, we would fly in missionaries from all over the world. It was so exciting. We would get to host them. I went to Biola University and Talbot Theological Seminary for 10 years. I'm a little slow. And every year we would have a missions conference. And we got to talk to missionaries from all over the world. And I went to classes with guys who were on furlough, re-equipping themselves. And I love missionaries. And when you get around missionaries, I even work for two missions agencies. When you get around missionaries, you'll end up talking about strategy. And I'm all for it. It's, it's great to talk about strategy. It's very stimulating and exciting to see how God is using the creativity of people by the power of his spirit to reach the world for Christ. Very exciting. I, I loved it. And when you talk about strategy, you'll end up talking about many things. But one of the great strategies throughout the history of the church through the centuries has been the urban strategy. And I'm all for that, too. I love the urban strategy. It says that we have to go to where the large clusters of people are. We have to go to the cities. It's kind of like Tim Keller, you know, and the great work he's done in New York. Tremendous work. I believe in the urban strategy. But listen, the reason the cities are important is because there are individuals there. Jesus cares about the individual, right? He cares about the one sheep. He leaves the 99 for the one sheep. Jesus cares about the individual. Just think about how the Lord spent his ministry here on earth. There were how many years in his ministry? His life was 33 or so, but there were three years in his ministry. How many men did he effectively train during that time? Twelve. One was a washout, right? <laughs> Right. Absolutely right. God in the flesh comes to earth and he spends three years with 12 guys. How did the Lord spend his post-resurrection ministry? Well, there are um, 40 days between the resurrection and the ascension. And we learn from the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 that he appeared to some over 500 people. You do the math. That's an average of 12 to 13 people a day. This is the only man to rise up from the grave, never to die again. And does he go to the big venues? Does he go to the big stadiums? Does he go to the capitals of the world? No, he meets with 12 to 13 ordinary people a day. Pretty amazing. And you may feel, guys, that your sphere of influence is too small. Well, take comfort from the fact that God never said you're too few. Occasionally, he said you're too many. And he took a long time in that short post-resurrection ministry of 40 days. He took a long time walking with two disciples who weren't even part of the core of the inner group. In fact, we know the name of only one of them, Cleopas. He spent a long time walking from 
Jerusalem, pardon me, to Emmaus, which is about seven miles, and he walked at a conversational pace, and then when he got there, he went into their house and began to have a meal with them. He had a short time, and he spent a long time with two people who weren't part of the shakers and the movers. Why did Jesus do that? Because those two individuals were important to him. And he came to her. Why did he have to go through Samaria? I mean, do you ever think about that? Of all places, as you know, an observant Jew would never go through Samaria when he was going from Jerusalem to Galilee or vice versa. They would go Transjordan. They would cross over to Jordan on the east bank, go up and then cross back through Jordan and into Galilee in order to avoid going through Samaria and being defiled. But why did he have to pass through Samaria? The text says that, verse 4. He had to pass through Samaria. That's very forceful. It literally means it was necessary to pass through. It was absolutely necessary for him to pass through. Why? Because he was going to meet her there. He had a divine appointment. Jesus cares about the one sheep. He cares about the individuals. And you may feel, again, you don't have that big of a sphere of influence. Maybe you're a mom. And right now, it's all that you can do. It takes all your energies to invest your life into the two little ankle biters that live in your home. And I I don't know why I said that in a brogue. I have no idea. But maybe that's all you can do. And, And the neighbor lady, and you know, you've got three people that you're effectively reaching with the gospel. Take comfort from the fact that Jesus cared about the individuals. He came to her. The second thing that he did was that he let her do something for him. He let her do something for him. And this is a lost emphasis in evangelism, guys. And yet we see Jesus doing it over and over and over again. And it's okay, by the way, to share tracts. People are very effective in doing that. But this suggests something more. It suggests some relationship too, okay? Some investment of time. But he let her do something for him. Like I said, that's a lost emphasis in evangelism. And I'm usually so busy showing people how self-sufficient I am that I neglect to let them do something for me. You you ever struggle with that? Your neighbor peers over the fence, you're cutting down branches from your tree, and he says, hey, can I help you with that? No, 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 got it covered. Good is done. I'm an American. American. It's done. Yet we see Jesus doing this all over. It's an important principle to him in evangelism. It shows his vulnerability. The first words of Jesus to this woman are, give me a drink. Give me a drink. Just think about that. Do you think that Jesus was incapable of materializing a cup of cold water? Like, (laughs) No, they do it in Star Trek, but that's phony. (laughs) This is real. You know, Jesus fed northward of 20,000 people twice with a little boy's lunch with a few fish and a few pieces of bread. Jesus turned 120 to 150 gallons of water into 120 to 150 gallons of wine, the best wine. Jesus did that in a moment, in an instant. This is the one that Paul says is really the agent of creation, Colossians 1, 16 and 17. 
Jesus spoke and the universe became. Do you think that he couldn't have just materialized a cup of water? The first words are, give me a drink. She could have said what? No. You get your own water. I worked hard for this water. Jesus says, give me a drink. On his way to the cross, we mentioned Zacchaeus. The Lord was passing through Jericho on his way to Jerusalem. And uh, the text says that, you know, the people were pressing up against him and he comes up to the tree where Zacchaeus is and he looks up and addresses Zacchaeus. How many conversations do you think Zacchaeus had with an adult when he was looking down at that adult? The first conversation, I can tell you this, that he had with God Almighty, he was looking down at him. And Jesus says that, the text says that he stops at this tree and he looks up and Jesus initiates a conversation with Zacchaeus and he says, Zacchaeus, I'd like to go to your home with you. I want to have a meal with you. I'd like for you to feed me. It shows his vulnerability. He's identifying with us in our frailty. You know, with all the things we're not told in the Gospels, and we're not told a lot, right? You realize that the Gospels are the cliff notes on the cliff notes of the cliff notes of the abbreviated cliff notes. With all the things that we're not told, and by the way, John in John 21, 25 says, and there are also many other things that Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books which were written. Jesus did a lot of stuff, and with all the stuff that we're not told, why is it that we're told about the swaddling clothes not once, but I believe three times? You want to know why? Why is that important? Why is that part of the signs? It is important because when God Almighty became a man, he couldn't even swaddle himself. He had to be wrapped by someone else. He had to be picked up and nurtured and comforted by one of his creatures. That's God identifying with our frailty, and that's part and parcel of Christ's evangelistic approach. Give me a drink. You know, what's staggering about this is, and let me give you a reason why it's staggering here. That what's staggering here is that if an observant Jew came into contact with a Samaritan, if the shadow of the Samaritan, we're not talking about a brush of the skin of the hand or a brush of a cloak, but if the shadow of a Samaritan came into contact with an observant Jew, he was considered ritually unclean. What does that mean practically? It means that before he'd go to temple, before he could sacrifice, before he could worship, before he could pray, before he could even eat, he had to go wash himself from the defiling contact of the shadow of a Samaritan. But do you realize what Jesus says to this woman? He says, lady... I'd like a drink from your cup. It's staggering. You know, the world and housed the whole population of Jews, and at that time, the Jews in the Roman Empire were the offscouring of the world. Nobody liked the Jews. And the Samaritans were the offscouring of the Jews. And the women were the offscouring of the Samaritan men. And this woman was the offscouring of the Samaritan women. Why do you think she's at the well in the sixth hour, 12 noon, high noon, Jewish time? That's crazy. Remember that observation by Noel Coward? Actually, he robbed it and got it from Rudyard Kipling. 
when he said that only mad dogs and Englishmen go out in the noonday sun? It's crazy. You don't do that. The other women came in the morning. They came in the evening. She's there at noon because the other women wouldn't have anything to do with her. She was despised. She was ostracized. She came alone, and Jesus came to her and said, I'd like a drink. Can we share a cup? Amazing. Third thing that Jesus did was that he told her about a free gift. The free introductory offer. Doesn't that ring a little hollow? You ever watch late night TV? Apparently there's a lot of free stuff that can be had in late night TV. You've heard the pitch, right? Buy this blop, whatever it is. $29.95, our operators are standing by. But act now, and what? You'll get a second blop, absolutely free. Absolutely free. Just pay separate shipping and a processing fee. Do they think we're stupid? Yes, largely speaking, right? Everybody wants free these days. Everybody wants a free lunch. You know, Domino's is giving away frees, not fees. They're giving away frees. The, the government is giving away free money, free money to everyone. Milton Friedman, the late great Nobel laureate from the University of Chicago was the president of a club. You know what the name of the club was? There ain't no such thing as a free lunch club. And there ain't, pardon the English. But there's one thing that's free. What he offers is free. And it's the most costly thing in the whole universe. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Verse 13. Jesus answered and said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water shall thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I will give him will become in him a well of water springing up to eternal life. But look at verse 14 again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. What does that mean? What is it that we're offering to the world? Does this mean that a single Christian doesn't have romantic longings and doesn't desire to be married and to have significant, meaningful relationships? Does this mean that married Christians never have disappointment and real heartbreak and unmet needs? Does this mean that Christians never want to make the better grades, never want to be the better athletes, never want to be slimmer or stronger or run further and faster? Does this mean that we don't have those kinds of needs when we drink of the water that causes us never to thirst again? No. But what it does mean is this. You see, I've had almost all of those needs that I've just mentioned and desires at one point or another in my life, except for the need to run. <laughs> I only have the need and compulsion to not run. Unless I'm being chased by a cheetah, in which case it's pointless. <laughs> Might as well just curl up and get it over with. <laughs> but 
But I've had almost all those needs at one time or another in my life, and they've been real needs, felt needs. But let me tell you something I haven't longed for or wanted since I drank of the water that Jesus gave me at salvation. I have never longed or wanted for a Savior. I have never said, okay, God, if there was just some way that I could be clean, there was just some way that I knew who you were, and that I had a relationship with you, and that you loved me, and that I had eternal life, if there was just some way that I could know what's going to happen to me when I die, and why am I here, what's the meaning of life? I have never thirsted for that, have you? In a moment of doubt, there's that pain, but the Lord always brings us back to the water. We drunk deeply of the waters of salvation that have taken away all of our thirst for these things. And that's the kind of water that we're offering here, that he's offering here, and that we have the privilege of offering to a very thirsty world. A very thirsty world that in spite of its self-professed self-sufficiency just can't get any satisfaction, guys. The stones are right on this one. There is no satisfaction for those existential questions apart from Jesus. The fourth thing that he did was that he told her who he was. Look at verse 25 and 26. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When that one comes, he will declare all things to us. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now I told you his behavior was staggering because of the nature of the relationship between Jews and Samaritans. There's a lot of antipathy there, a lot of hatred, a lot of prejudice, a lot of bad blood. Now let me give you a reason why his behavior was staggering because of the nature of the relationship between men and women in that day. And by the way, this is the only place in the Gospels where his messiahship is revealed out of his mouth except for his trial. This is the most complete revelation of his messiahship that he gives to anyone, and he gives it to a Samaritan whore. And pardon the indelicate word, but if I use the word harlot, it literally robs from what Jesus is trying to do here. The Talmud, which is a collection of rabbinical tradition, commentary on the scriptures, commentary on what the rabbis said about the other rabbis, is gossip committed to volume. But the Talmud gives us a reflection of what was being taught at this time when Jesus told her who he was. It gives a reflection of the tradition that was being taught of the relationship between men and women in that day. This is what the rabbis were teaching about that relationship. And I quote the Talmud. And the Talmud, I realize you, someone might know about the Talmud and they say, Marcelo, it wasn't written until later. It wasn't codified to writing until later, until after the dispersion and the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. But all this voluminous information was committed to memory. These guys with massive brains just memorized it all. And it was oral tradition that was written down two, three centuries later, but it existed at the time that Jesus was telling this woman who he was. And this is what the rabbis were teaching, according to the Talmud. Quote, Do not speak with a woman in the street, no, not with your own wife. That little bit of tradition was definitely written by a dude. <laughs> I quote again, and this one really, 
Honestly, guys, the only way to state it is it, it hurts my heart because I've got a daughter. And my daughter, Rebecca, ever since she was a little girl, I baptized this girl, so I know her. But ever since she was little, she had a, a love and an understanding of the scriptures that amazed me. And we love to dialogue about the law together, the law of God. So when I read this, I, I do it through pained eyes. But this is what the, the rabbis were teaching. He who teaches the law to his daughter plays the fool. And I quote again, better to burn the law than to teach it to a woman. It was at this time that Jesus told her who he was, this Jesus, this Messiah. The fifth thing that he did was he told her who she was. Look at verse 16 and following. He said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered and said, uh, I provided that. Uh, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one whom you now have is not your husband. This you have said truly. She was trying to hide behind a technicality. She was technically not married. She was living with a man. And she'd been married five times earlier. And she was trying to hide and avoid the question, and Jesus pulled back the curtain, and he said, Ma'am, I know who you are. I see your heart. I know what you've done. You can't hide. And we have lots of people like this in today's culture, don't we? Lots of people like this. They, people who have seen Pride and Prejudice too many times. I've been forced to watch Pride and Prejudice. More than once by my beloved, dear, lovely wife and my daughter and my sons. My three boys love Pride and Prejudice. They love it. They do. But they, they read... You know, Jane Austen's book, or they see the movie, let's stick to the movie because everybody's seen the movie, and they say, oh, I love this movie. I, I want what's in this movie. And the whole point of the movie is, or the book also, but it's to get you to the end for the punchline. That big punchline when, when Mr. Darcy and Elizabeth are in the back of their palatial, huge estate with ducks and geeses in the fountains and big pools of water, and massive land and oaks. And Mr. Darcy says to Elizabeth, Art thou happy? <laughs> I don't think he says, Art thou, right? <laughs> it's a little extra there. But he says, Are you happy? And Elizabeth says, I am incandescently happy. incandescently happy. You have incandescence, you know. There's a pill and a cream you can take for that. <laughs> but people see that and they go, that's what I want. I want a gal like that. Or I want a guy like that. I, I want to be incandescently happy. So they run out and get a spouse. And then they found out within a short amount of time that they're not happy, let alone incandescently. So they get another spouse, and then they say, oh, no, but if I had a different spouse than this spouse, then my needs would be met, and then I would be happy, so they get a different spouse. And then they go out and get another spouse, and then they realize, oh, but now I know better. 
and I'm older and more mature, if I had a different spouse than this spouse, then my needs would be met. And then they finally get to the point where they can say, or they say, well, I can live without marriage, but I can't live without the opposite sex, so I'll disregard my conscience and live by my impulses. And that's the point that this woman has gotten herself to when Jesus said, I know your heart. I know what you've done. You know, guys, there are people and friends that know me, but there are things about me that they don't know. And I've done things, especially when I was a younger man, that I would be ashamed to tell any man or woman because of the shame of it. You know what? Jesus Christ knows all about those things. You know what else? He came to me anyway. And he loved me anyway. And he saved me anyway. And this woman made some great mistakes. I don't want to minimize her sin or diminish it. She was a great sinner, hall of shame. And occasionally the question is asked, though, when you read of something like this or a person like this, and they ask, is can the Lord use someone who's been divorced? Or can the Lord use someone who's been very immoral? Or can the Lord use someone who's been in prison or done this and that? You fill in the blank, right? And I guess the real question that's being asked is, can the Lord use someone who is a sinner, a great sinner? And the question that's left is, who else does the Lord have? If you can't use sinners, guys, you wouldn't use me, you wouldn't use you, you wouldn't have used the Apostle Paul, the great Apostle Paul. You say, no, 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 he was a great Christian. He kicked that sin thing. <laughs> you know, it's interesting to chart the Apostle Paul's estimation of himself as you look at the New Testament unfolding. Because in 1 Corinthians, he said, he called himself the least of the apostles. In Ephesians 3, he called himself the least of the saints. And in 1 Timothy 1, he called himself the chief of what? Sinners. What's interesting about how that rolls out is that 1 Corinthians was written before Ephesians and Ephesians was written before 1 Timothy. So as the Apostle Paul, that great line of the faith, the apostle to the Gentiles, the evangelist to the nations, as this great man grew in grace, his estimation of himself became more modest as he saw how great a Savior Jesus was and that he saves great sinners and uses them. And let's just personalize this just a little bit. And we're almost done here. But those things that you have done that you're ashamed to speak of, those things that you have done in secret, those things that you have forgotten or wish you could, Jesus Christ knows all about that. All about it, every detail. You know what else? That didn't keep him from you. That didn't repulse him from you. But in fact, that's what drove him because of his great love for you, for me. That's what drove him to the cross because he knew that the only thing that could wash away the stain of all that guilt, of those terrible things, was the blood of his cross. And so the last thing that Jesus did for this woman, and you know the ending, was that he saved her. And we'll just end with that one because that's the epitome. 
Jesus saved her. Jesus, the friend of sinners, saves sinners. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this great reality that you in heaven were moved by our sin to send your Son to save us. Lord, we thank you for that great gift. And Lord, we pray that you would motivate us by love to share this with those who need to hear it. And right now, if there's anybody here that does not know a cleansed heart, that does not know Jesus as Savior, we pray that this very moment he or she would just cry out to you and say, Lord, I know that I'm a sinner. Please forgive me by the blood of Jesus, he who died and was buried and rose again for me. I believe in him. Lord, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at covgraceminifee.org. May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.